Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. We're looking at the, the last part of the flood account as we come to chapter 8. And as we've gone through it, and even before, we've, we've looked at this idea where Scripture tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. We see it in the Psalms, and then that's further reiterated in Romans. And if anybody would think otherwise, actually, I, I don't know if that is true. Can I just encourage you to just come back and, and, and just understand the account of the flood. See, the issue that God had was not just that there was evil behavior on the outside and that it dishonored God. Because if you think, it wasn't that every action of theirs was solely evil. They were doing some good things as well. If you remember Lamech's children, I mean, they were making advances in the culture. You know, they, they founded musical instruments, were making music, they were doing farming and animal husbandry and, uh, you know, trying to figure out various metals and making tools and weapons and so on and so forth. But even though all this was happening, there was a fundamental issue and it was at the heart level. And the issue was that Everyone was sinful before God's eyes. Everyone had become corrupt. And that's why God sent the flood. And and this is true even today, and we must so understand this fact. We should never think, oh, you know what, perhaps there are some parts of the world, you know, Maybe people don't do as much evil and somehow God will just let them slide because they don't do as much evil acts as perhaps some other people. No, everyone is going to be judged by God. And if they do not turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and believe on the person of Jesus and what he has done on the cross, all who reject him and who do not turn to him will, be, will face the eternal judgment of God. In, f- in fact, that's the reason why in Romans 10, Paul urges, there's an urgency to sharing the gospel with everyone around. Because he says, how will they hear? How will they be saved? unless somebody takes the gospel to them. So God is a God who is righteous. And he has a passion to uphold his righteousness and his glory and his goodness in this world. Remember, God created a very good world a world that reflected his righteousness, a world that reflected his glory, a world that reflected his goodness. 
But because of the sinfulness of mankind, there was corruption everywhere. Man rejected God and his word and his order. They didn't want to live under the blessing of God's word. And so then God gave them what they wanted, which is the flood, where God decreates the world and the blessing of living under his word is removed. And so in this sense, God had brought judgment on all the world to wipe clean all the corruption and to start afresh. In fact, this world, as you think about it, many theologians would say that this catastrophic event, as we looked at it last week, where there was parting or breaking of the earth's crust, and fountains of the deep bursting forth and, and rain pelleting down, it would have changed the very topography of the world. There was deepening of the ocean floors as there were earthquakes and tsunamis and so forth. And as some, as I mentioned last week, some even tend to think that perhaps at the start it was all just one big landmass. And because of this catastrophic event where there was partition of these great landmasses, that's how various continents came about. And, and again, because of this catastrophic event, you can think about it, how big tsunamis and earthquakes and, and floods and all that going on where you can have huge bits of dirt and soil and, and so on just just piling over animals and mankind. And so that's how when you see in different places of the world, you see these various strata of soil and rock and silt, and you see all these fossils, how that could have happened so quickly as this flood came about. And then even things like the Grand Canyon uh, came about. And so this morning, as we look at Genesis 8, this is where God is now going to restore his creation. And we have much to see here in terms of both, again, being reminded of God's character uh, and his pattern or his way of doing things as he interacts with the world and he, as he interacts with sinners as, and his people as well. And as well as seeing how we can respond to this. Now, by way of outline, I've got four points. In verses one through five, we're going to look at the receding of the flood waters. In verses six through twelve, we're going to look at the the waiting for the dry lands. In verses thirteen through to nineteen. We're going to look at Noah and his family as they, they're entering a new world. And then lastly, in verses 20 to 22, we're going to see responding to God's gracious work. So let's just first look at the receding of the flood waters in verses 1 through 5. Verse 1 reads, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. But God remembered. 
So there's a strong contrast to what has been mentioned before. What has just happened before? God has sent the flood and everything that had the breath of life that was on the ground, they were decimated. They were killed and they were drowned in this global flood. All of mankind and all the animals on the ground that were outside the ark were killed by drowning. And so the whole earth is now submerged in water. And as we looked at last week, it has almost gone back to that state where it was on day one of creation where everything is submerged in water. It's just this big round of water. And it's almost like God has uncreated the world. And then if you remember, at the end of Genesis 7, verse 24, it tells us that the waters, these flood waters, they prevailed for 150 days. 150 days, that's... 30 days of five, or in other words, for five months. So while that has happened, it says, and everything got decimated outside the ark, in contrast, but God remembered Noah. Now what does it mean that God remembered Noah? See, it's not saying that somehow God sent the flood of judgment and the waters prevail for these five months and, you know, this ark is just bobbing along on the flood waters and God had totally forgotten about uh, Noah and everybody in the flood, uh, everyone in the ark and God is saying, oh, I forgot about them, uh, time to remember them and, uh, you know, he's recollecting things. No, uh, you know, if we look at the entire span of scripture, we will recognize that God is an all-knowing God. In fact, Job 31, 37, 16, pardon me, says, do you know the balance of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Speaking about God, meaning that God is perfect in his knowledge about everything. He knows everything past, present, and future. There is nothing that God ever learns. There's no new information that God ever attains. He never looks into the past as though he's forgotten. He never looks into the present because he's busy and then he's trying to gain some new information because he can't get a hold of everything that is happening in the present. And he never looks into the future also, trying to learn something new in the future. Remember, God exists. He's, an, he's a being that can exist. He's not bound by time or space. He exists outside of time and space. So as far as God is concerned, even time is just an eternal present right in front of him where he is outside of it. And everything is under God's sovereign control and will. And because he is in control of everything, he knows everything. He is the all-knowing God. 
So when it says that God remembered, it's not so much saying that God had a mental recollection, like he forgot and he's now bringing it back to mind. No, it's saying that God at his appointed time is now deciding to act in reference to a person or a people. Let me put it like this. In the Bible, when it says God remembers, it is saying that now God, with regards to God, there's going to be a focused action toward a particular person or people at a particular time. Let me say that again. When in the Bible you see the term God remembered, it's saying that now God is going to there's going to be a focused action toward a particular person at a particular time that God has appointed. Most times, this God remembering is in a favorable sense. You know, one instance of an unfavorable instance, you see that in uh, Revelation 16, 19. But most times, when God remembers, it's talking about God remembering in a favorable sense, where he's going to act favorably toward this person. Look at Genesis 19, 29, where it says that God remembered Abraham. Or in other words, God was faithful to his word to Abraham, where Abraham had interceded for Lot and his family and therefore acted favorably toward Lot at the time. Then when we come to Exodus, Exodus 2.24, where it says God remembered his covenant to Abraham, Abraham and therefore he then decides to act to, to show particular favor to the nation of Israel. Or even in the New Testament, as we come to the New Testament, when we think of the penitent thief on the cross in Luke 23.42, Remember, the, that, that penitent thief says, uh, you, you know, Lord Jesus, please remember me when you enter your kingdom. And so what the thief is saying, he, he's not just simply saying, oh, Jesus, please simply have a mental recollection of me. No, he, he's saying, please act favorably toward me. So similarly, you know, having seen all that. Similarly, in Genesis 8, when it says God remembered Noah, it is saying that God is going to act favorably toward Noah at this particular point in time. This was his time, God's time, appointed time, to act favorably now. And particularly in this context, God was going to act faithfully also to his covenant promise to Noah by acting favorably to Noah. Remember in Genesis 6:18, God had established a covenant promise with Noah and his family that they would be saved and that they have a hope for a future. So now God is going to come good. He's going to be faithful to that promise and he's going to uh, deliver them. And then even more broadly, you can even think of God's promise in Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent that there would always be a godly line from the seed of the woman. A people who would hate Satan and a people who would love 
God. So God is fulfilling that promise. And think about it. If Noah had died in the flood or even in the ark, this godly man, then that godly line would have been obliterated. And then even the ultimate seed of the woman, which is Jesus Christ, would not be able to come through. God would have to start a new humanity then. And then God would be a liar then. So God is fulfilling his promise. And he's advancing that promise. God's appointed time has come to act favorably to not just keep Noah safe in the ark, but now to deliver Noah and his family and all the animals in the ark. And, and here's the thing I want you to just think of. Now, while it says here God remembered Noah and, and, and that he's going to act favorably, that's part of the narrative of the text. God is not particularly coming to Noah and saying this. Noah does not know this. Oh, he's inside this ark. It's been five months already in the ark. In this ark that, that is most likely dimly lit with all these animals and smells and so on and so forth. And everyone that Noah knew except for his immediate family has kill, is killed. And, and this ark is just floating around. There's no way he can propel it. He can't steer it, not do anything. And it's been five months. Now, I don't know if Noah ever thought, has, has God forgotten about us? Has God abandoned us? But the text says here that even though the flood waters of judgment prevailed for five months and it obliterated all life outside the ark, God remembered Noah. He did not abandon Noah. Instead, God remembered Noah and everyone in the ark and God was going to act favorably and he was going to deliver him. And really, the, the rest of the verses that follow just explain how God remembered and acted favorably toward Noah. Look at the second part of verse 1 and then 2 and 3. It reads, And God made a wind to blow over the earth, the water subsi- and the waters subsided. The floodwaters of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens were closed and the rain stopped falling from the sky and the waters receded from the earth continually. So God remembered Noah and as a result, all this is happening. First, it says there that God brought about a wind and this is not some gentle breeze. Oh, this is a wind, and not just in a local area. Notice here it says, God made a wind to blow over the earth. We're talking about over the entire planet. 
so you can get the gravity of, of the kind of wind it was. It was everywhere over the earth. And in fact, you know, some theologians say that as a result of this wind coming and some of the language that is used of the, the flood waters receding of it going up and down and to and fro and just going down like that, it's quite likely that it's talking about winds that had so much force that it's actually pushing great amounts of water this way and that way. So even, even in this, some theologians would agree that it's moving large amounts of sand and silt and so on and so forth. So much so that even uh, mountains, mountaintops are getting even higher as, as the waters are pushing it this way. Some valleys are getting deeper as think waters are being moved this way and that way. And some say that perhaps even there's some amount of water evaporation taking place as well. And then on top of that, God also causes the sources of water that caused the flood to be shut. He sealed closed the openings of the fountains of the deep perhaps with the, the, the movement of all these uh, large amounts of soil and rocks. And even the rains were stopped from falling from the sky. And all of this started causing the water levels to start dropping in a continual, gradual manner. So much so that in verse 4 it says that in the seventh month, on the seventh day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. So another two months have passed. Now, mountains of Ararat, most Bible scholars believe that this is talking about the mountain ranges in the region of Ararat. You say, where's that? Well, this is the region of Armenia, uh, the southeastern part of Turkey, which is also southern Russia and the northwestern part of Iran. That's where these mountain ranges lie. In fact, one of the mountains in this range is actually called, even to this day, Mount Ararat. And it's about 17,000 feet high. So that, that, that just gives you an idea of how high these floodwaters were. But with the floodwaters receding, the ark came to rest somewhere on the mountain ranges in the Ararat region. And then now verse 5 adds, and the waters continue to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So another three months have passed. After the ark came to rest somewhere on the mountain ranges of Ararat, and finally the tops of the mountains are becoming 
visible as the water is receding. See, this section, these first five verses, as we look at it, it should remind us of the sovereignty of God, of the sovereignty of God over all of nature. See, the same God who brought the flood of judgment is the same God who is now sovereignly saving his people by moving around the elements. It's not happening by accident. Now, which is why, in one sense, I, I really like the insurance companies where sometimes they have a better the- theology than some of us Christians. Because when hail comes or other things come, they don't say natural disaster. They, uh, you know, it's termed as an act of God. Because there are no accidents in the world. No, these things are brought about by God who is sovereignly in control of everything. And I think as we see Noah and his family and all the animals in that ark, even for this time period, As, as it says, God remembered Noah. It should bring us great comfort for those of us who are Christians as well. Because the reality is, God will never forget his people. If you are a child of God, God will never forget you. He will never abandon you. As covenant children, you and I are in this wonderful relationship with God. And God will preserve us to the end. He will be faithful to every promise that he has given to us. Now that doesn't mean that therefore life in this sin-cursed world will be easy. That doesn't mean therefore that we won't have any difficulties or, or trials or suffering and so on and so forth. It doesn't mean that we can't lose our jobs. It doesn't mean that we can't get cancer or some other bodily infirmity. It doesn't mean that we won't go through sometimes even very painful seasons of life. But what it does mean is that even though we will have difficulties and trials, God has not abandoned us. In fact, God is for us, as Romans 8 says, if you're a child of God. And the greatest proof of that is that he has given his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. That is the greatest proof that God is for you and for me if you're a child of God. And that he will not abandon us. And the great comfort is that this life is short while it might be full of suffering, God will be faithful to preserve us to the end and ultimately save us. So God causes the floodwaters to recede because he remembers Noah and he's going to deliver Noah and all the inhabitants of the ark. Uh, out onto land. 
So five months of water prevailing. Few more months have passed. The floodwaters are now receding. The ark has come to rest on the mountain ranges of Ararat. But Noah and his family and all the animals would have to wait another few months before they can disembark the ark. And here we come to a second heading, waiting for the dry lands, verses 6 through 12. See, the ark had come to rest on the mountains. But Noah can't make out how much water is still left in the world. He 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 doesn't know what's outside the ark. He doesn't know if there's any proper dry land anywhere. He has to wait on the Lord and and trust the Lord with it. But while he waits on the Lord, he acts wisely to determine the state of the world outside the ark. Remember Noah had lived for 600 years. And in that period of time he's gained a lot of experience and wisdom in his life. He's a very intelligent man. And so what he does is he uses two types of birds to assess how much water has receded outside and if it was getting close to uh and if it would be safe enough to get out of the ark first noah sends out a raven look at verses 6 and 7 it says there at the end of 40 days noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven it went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth so again if you notice here noah waits another 40 days after the mountain tops had become visible and then he sends out this raven now what's a raven a raven is an unclean bird something of the category of it it's similar to a crow i guess It's not a bird that could be used for sacrifice as per God's standards and it's not a bird that could be eaten later as well when God allows for the eating of animals as far as God is concerned this is an unclean animal See this raven it is a scavenger bird that feeds on almost anything including dead things so the raven is sent out and as the raven goes out to the and as it sees the flood waters there's most likely bits and pieces of dead carcasses floating on the water and so now the raven is able to feed on itself without having to rely on noah and it's just flying from one thing to another perhaps even floating on or resting on some of these uh, floating pieces that on the flood waters or perhaps you know when it says it went flying to and fro perhaps it came back to the outside of the ark or rested on top of the mountains that were exposed we don't know exactly what it means that the raven was flying to and fro 
But this much is clear. The raven doesn't return to Noah because there's sufficient food outside for the raven. But it is still somewhere close to the ark. And what became clear to Noah at this point is that there is still death floating around outside the ark. Now, Noah sends out a dove. Now, the dove is a very different bird to the raven. The dove is a, is a clean bird. It's an animal that will be used for sacrifices and an animal that can be eaten even later. See, this dove, it's not a scavenger. Uh, it doesn't feed on dead things like a raven. No, it feeds mostly on leaves. And then on top of that, these are birds of the valley where they fly very close to the ground. So Noah sends out this dove. Look at verses 8 and 9. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. So for the dove to find leaves to feed on, the water levels would need to be much lower, not right up there till the mountain peaks or whatever. And so because the water levels are still high, the dove returns. Now Noah waits another week. Verses 10 and 11. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. So another week has passed, the dove is sent out again. And this time it comes back in the evening. And so the implication may be that this dove was out all day outside the ark. And it came back only at the end of the day. And it had a freshly plucked olive leaf in its beak. Notice here, it's not some old dead leaf that was floating around. No, it's a fresh new olive leaf. And that told Noah the water levels had gone down significantly, even down in the valleys, enough for a new olive plant to start growing. It really was evidence of new life. As one commentator writes about this section, he says, quote, A dove with an olive leaf in its beak is used as a symbol of peace. But here, it is a symbol of new life as well as of peace. It meant that the time of judgment was over. Close quote. So judgment and death had come to an end. 
And now there's a, there's a picture of peace with this dove coming with this olive branch or olive leaf. That old world had come to an end and a new world and new life was beginning. Oh, and this would have given so much reassurance to Noah that, oh, there's now possibility of life outside and it's going to be safe very soon to get out of the ark. Verse 12 says, Then he waited another seven days. So, you know, he's been waiting and waiting and waiting. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. And what this told Noah was that the water levels had dropped even more. So much so that there was now enough dry land and new plant life for the dove to not want to return to Noah. It was a sign that very soon that they would be able to get out of the ark as well. See, one thing I want to point out here is this. Noah had to wait a long time. He had to wait on the long uh, he had to wait on the Lord for a long time before God would tell him to come out of the ark. Noah was told that he and everyone in the ark would be saved, but God never told him when exactly that would happen. In fact, in the next couple of verses, we will see that Noah was actually in the ark for more than a year. That's how long he waited in the ark to be delivered. And I would think the the many decades, you know, year after year, decade after decade, that Noah took to build the ark, despite all the difficulties as he clung on to God's word of judgment and salvation. I think in some sense, that would have also trained him to wait on the Lord, to trust in the Lord during these difficult times in the ark for his salvation, uh, ultimately. I mean, think about it. God could have quickly just receded the waters and dried the lands in just a day. I mean, he did that at creation, didn't he? Where the waters parted and there was dry land. But he doesn't do that here. No, it takes a long time. And so Noah had to wait in the ark for a long time for the Lord. And and here in these verses, there are all these details of Noah waiting patiently in the ark. And even sending out these birds and so on and so forth. Just waiting and waiting to see when he can get out of the ark. And I think the reason God does this, why he took so much time, for the flood waters to, to return so that Noah could wait on the Lord, I think it's because so that Noah would have a greater sense of who God is. So that Noah would know God more. 
that Noah would really understand the righteousness and the justice and the goodness of God, as well as the grace that was being shown to him. That Noah would have a a true understanding of who God is while he clung on to the word of God as he waited for God to deliver him and be faithful to his promise. You know, I was even reminded of when we went through the book of Habakkuk, remember? Similar thing. When God told Habakkuk that he was going to send the Chaldeans to judge the wicked people of Judah for rejecting God and and going their own way, that he was going to bring now Chaldeans a more wicked people, and the people of Judah are going to be taken into exile. You know, Habakkuk doesn't fully understand this God. He's like, why God? I, I, I don't understand why you're doing this. But as Habakkuk wrestles with God, he still clings on to God and waits on God. And you remember at the end of it all, At the end of the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk has a greater and deeper understanding about the character of God, of who God is. And even though his circumstances do not change, and even though the Chaldeans would still come and take the people of Judah into exile, Habakkuk realizes, oh, this is who God is. He's so much more bigger, and he's completely in control of all this. And that causes him to worship God as he waits on God, and he gets a bigger picture of God. And I think it's the same reason why God took so long and made Noah wait in the ark while the waters were just slowly and gradually and continuously receding. So that Noah would have a greater understanding of God's justice and mercy and grace. And this is a principle that we need to understand as children of God. That at times, God will make us go through difficulties and trials. And he will cause us to wait on him for an extended period of time. And the reason, or at least one of the reasons why he does this is so that we can cling on to him and wait on him. And as we do that, we get a greater sense of who God is. And that in turn further strengthens our faith and it causes us to worship God and to cling on to God more than other things around us. So that's Noah waiting for the dry lands. Now let's look at entering a new world in verses 13 through 19. Entering a new world. Verse 13 and 14. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 22nd day of the month, the earth had dried out. Notice here three times the word dried is used in these two verses. To really emphasize the the drying of the waters or the drying of the land. 
The, the first two times it's used, it's the same word that's used in the original, and the last time, a different word is used. And so when you think of the progression, it seems to be something like this, that first, as, as part of the narration, it says that the waters were dried up from the earth. Then Noah, who does not have a clue of you know, what exactly the water levels were like, he removes the covering of the ark. Perhaps it was some sort of covering that you know, covered the opening that was just under the roof. A covering that would protect this opening as well when there's uh, rain waters uh, pelleting down. And so Noah removes this covering. And then finally, he gets to look outside for the first time. And what he sees is dry land. Oh, what an excitement it would have been for him to see dry land after such a long time. And then in verse 14, if you look at the timeline, verse 13 and verse 14, it, it took almost another two months after this for the whole earth to be dried up. So perhaps when, even though in some sense the land was dried, there were po possibly puddles of water. Or maybe the land was too slushy. But finally, after two months of uh, Noah visualizing the outside world, the land is finally totally dry without any water. And I want you to notice even the length of time that Noah was in the ark. See, in Genesis 7:11, it told us that Noah was 600 years, two months, and 17 days. That's when they all entered the ark, and that was the day the floodwaters came. 600 years, two months, and 17 days. Then Genesis 8 and verse 11 you know, it's talking now about Noah's 601st year. So now it's Noah's 601 years now. And in 814, it says, Noah is 601 years, two months, and 27 days. So you calculate that. Noah was in the ark for one year and 11 days. One year and 11 days. That's how long he had to wait in the ark. And still, you know, what you see about Noah is he doesn't just jump out of the ark now. He doesn't get out of the ark till God actually tells him. So now verse 15 and 16 and 17, it says, Then... So once the land is completely dry, without any water, then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. You know, one commentator writes, commenting on this section, 
He says, Noah's trust in God is indicated by his patience in waiting for God's instruction to leave the ark, rather than simply using the evidence he gathered from the release of the birds as an indication that it was safe to disembark the ark. Isn't that amazing? So he knew now for certain it was completely dry outside. Still, Noah will not step out of the ark till God tells him to do so. Noah waited till God told him to disembark the ark. Verse 18 and 19. So, after God has told him, Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. What a day that would have been. <laughs> you know, I can, I can only imagine, you know, Noah and his family and all these animals coming out of the ark after a year and 11 days. I mean, God had wiped clean the wicked people of the world. Those who blasphemed him, those who rejected him, God had killed them all. And the only human beings and the animals that were on the planet right now were those who were coming out of the ark. And then you can even imagine, as I mentioned, the, the whole landscape of the earth had changed. Big mountains, deeper valleys, deeper oceans. In fact, what's interesting is that the words that are used here in this text, it's pointing to a recreation or a new creation. Remember, God had decreated the world where nothing was evident. The waters covered the whole earth so much so that it was, the whole earth was formless and void, like day one of creation. Then the, excuse me, then the waters receded and dry land and mountains and, and plants appeared. And the earth once again has life as Noah and his family and all the animals are coming out of the ark. And then God even gives the command to the animals to go out and multiply and fill the earth. All of that echoing the first week of creation. In fact, even Genesis 8.1 where it said that there was a wind over the earth and the water subsided. You know the, what the word for wind is in the original? It's ruach. And that's the exact same word for spirit. And so if you remember, even here, that, that's an echo of Genesis 1 verse 2 where it said that the ruach of God or the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and then finally the waters part and dry lands appear. So all these echoes are pointing to the fact 
that God's plan of redemption is to bring about a new creation and even establish the very blessing of that created order. And you know what? This keeps, uh, God kind of shows this in different ways as we progress in Scripture. In fact, if you move into the book of Exodus, you know, when the Israelites were redeemed from the Egyptians, it says in Exodus 14 that God brought about a wind and then the waters parted and there was dry land and you have mankind or the people of Israel passing through on dry land and there's even animals with them. And then even after that, you know, as the Israelites come through there, God then says, I have now made you a new people. You are now a people of God, essentially saying they're a new creation. In fact, you know, the, the, the title for Adam as son of God, God's original creation, is now given to Israel where God will now corporately call Israel the very son of God. Almost saying, hey, this is now the new creation. Adam was the first one. This is now the new creation of God. This new people of God. Then you come to the New Testament. And then 1 Peter 3, it tells us of the flood narrative and the rescue of Noah and his family is a picture of salvation of God's children again, as it's pictured in the waters of baptism. See, when an individual, when a Christian, is immersed in water, it is a picture of death. Why? Because if a person remains submerged underwater for longer than a few minutes, they will die. So going down into the waters is a picture of death. It's a picture that that old self, that old world is dead. It's a picture that this Christian no longer belongs to that world of sin. He is dead to that. And then as the Christian comes out of the water, it's a picture of new life or righteousness. It's a picture of being a new creation in Christ. And it's identifying as, or saying that they belong to the new world that God is going to usher in. And then ultimately, as Christians, we, we long for that day when we will ultimately be saved and ushered into God's new creation, where there will be no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. And we will be in the presence of this great God forever. And what a day that will be. And from that day onward for all of eternity. So what all this is pointing to is that God will one day restore the original blessing of his creation through his redemptive work. And Noah being saved from his old world, that world of corruption. And Noah entering into a new world is a picture of the reality of salvation. That, it, 
That is in some sense true of us already, currently, presently. That we've been made new, that we are dead to that old life and that old world. But it's also pointing to that future reality, which will be our ultimate reality in the fullest sense, when Jesus will return and after the millennial reign, he'll usher us into the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is an echo of God's redemptive plan where he'll bring back even the promise of that created original created blessings. And what's happening with Noah as he entered a new world is a small picture of that. Now lastly, we're going to look at responding to God's gracious work verses 20 to 22. Responding to God's gracious work. Let's just look at verse 20 first. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. So the first thing Noah does as he comes out of the ark is worship God. He builds an altar to the Lord and offers a, you know, offers a blood sacrifice of clean animals to the Lord. Now just, just think about this. Noah was in the ark for more than a year. You know, there wasn't much sunlight You know, he was along with all the animals, with all the stench and whatnot, and it wouldn't have been that easy. I mean, talk about being locked down and restricted in this ark with all these animals for more than a year. And yet, Noah doesn't come out of the ark complaining to God. God, why did you take so long? Nor does he come out of the ark with a, with a chip on his shoulder, you know, congratulating himself, thinking, oh, I'm so glad, you know, because of my good works and righteousness, I got saved. And the rest of mankind that got killed serves them right. They got what they deserved. No, that, that's not Noah's attitude at all. In fact, he has a greater sense of the righteousness and the justice of God. See, as Noah waited in the ark for a whole year, and God killed everything that had the breath of life, every human being that was outside the ark, God killed and drowned in that flood because of their sin. And Noah got to see that in some sense as he was in the ark, or at least hear of it. And even then ponder very deeply on the attitude of God towards sin. But Noah also had a greater sense of the undeserved grace and mercy shown to him by God. You say, why? Because he knows full well he's a sinner before God, he's not perfect. And God is righteous and holy, and he is not. 
He recognizes full well that he doesn't deserve to be saved by God over everyone else in the world. And so that's why the first thing that he does as he comes out of the ark is worship God by offering blood sacrifices. See, because his blood sacrifice was a recognition that Noah was a sinner that an innocent blood sacrifice had to pay the price for his sins if he were to come and approach God. But it was also a a giving of praise and thanks and, and gratitude and even worship to the Lord for the grace that was shown to Noah and his family. You know, essentially, Noah, by offering the sacrifice, This is what he was saying to the Lord. Lord, you alone are worthy of worship and no other. Why? Because you alone are good and right and just and merciful and gracious. That's what he's doing with this sacrifice. Now verse 21 and 22. It says there, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. See, the Lord was pleased with the sacrifice. And so then now the Lord says, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Meaning that he will never again bring about a global flood and wipe out the entire human population so long as the earth remains. See, the next global judgment that God is going to bring about will literally destroy this earth, this whole earth. And he won't do that by water, but he will do that by fire. But till that time, So long as the earth remains, the seasons and day and night and and food and water and everything else will remain. And so what that means is no global warming, no accidental asteroid or anything else will wipe out all of life on this planet. God says he will never again wipe out the world on a global scale till the earth remains And and notice again in verse 21, it says, For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Isn't that interesting? See, because God sent a global flood. Why? Because the intentions of the thoughts of the hearts of man was continually evil. We saw that in Genesis 6. So God sent about a global flood. And the global flood, it hasn't taken away the issue of sin. God knows that. He sees that. And he's the all-knowing God. So it wasn't like, it was like, oh, flood happened, but everything is still the same. No, he knew that it wouldn't wipe out sin. 
But what God is saying here is this, that in his grace and mercy, even though man is inherently sinful, he will not bring about a global judge, a global flood, because of the sacrifice that he found pleasing in his sight. I love what one theologian said about this. He says, quote, Thus, at the foundation of the new world, at the very root of its history, one finds atonement, the means, that is, by which the world, in spite of its rebellion, is able to go on existing before a holy God. Or in other words, at the heart of God's redemption even here, as he brings about a new creation, is this innocent blood sacrifice that was pleasing in God's sight. And this is pointing forward to that ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God that would be sacrificed and that would, who would bear the full wrath of God for the sin of this world. I wonder if there's anyone listening today that is not a Christian. I want to let you know this. Christians are not perfect people. Oh, we're not sinless. We're far from that. Christians are not saved because we are somehow super special people. No, we're all sinful and we all deserve the judgment of God. But by the grace of God and because of God's grace alone, we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, who alone took our sin on himself and took the judgment on God, of God on himself so that we could be saved, so that God's judgment wouldn't fall on us. And friend, if you're not a Christian today, let me tell you, you too can be made right with God through Jesus Christ. Oh, God will judge sin. And this flood account is here to tell you that is exactly what he is going to do. But by God's grace, friend, let me tell you that if you see your sinfulness and, that you, and you see that all you deserve is only the judgment of God, then let me tell you, turn to Jesus and believe on him and what he has done on the cross for you. And if you believe, then turn away from your sin and keep turning to Jesus because this is the very evidence that you are someone who has put their trust in Jesus. Now, if you'd like to know more about Jesus or what it means to follow Jesus, you can email us at connect at gracebiblechurch.org. But for those of us who are believers, as we consider the account of the flood and the rescue of Noah and how that even uh, to some degree is pointing toward what Jesus has done on the cross, his work of salvation, as we consider this, 
may we not minimize the righteousness and the justice of God and his attitude toward our sin. May we never do that. If you ever are at a point where you don't see enough sin in your life, just look at the flood account. And if that's not enough, just look at the cross. That's the full judgment of God poured on Jesus. But as we consider rightly the the righteousness and the justice of God and his attitude toward our sin, in doing so, may we also then embrace even more so God's undeserved grace and mercy shown to us through Jesus Christ. And may it cause us to worship him and live for him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the great God you are. We thank you because you are perfect and holy in every way. That you are just and right and good to do all that you do. And yet you are also gracious and merciful. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace toward us that you have shown through Jesus Christ. And may we never cheapen your grace. May we never minimize our sin as we remember these accounts of the flood and and how that even points to the greater work of salvation. But help us to keep a fuller picture of who you are and as a result, help us to live for you knowing how great and good you are. Father, we thank you for revealing this to us. Father, we thank you for saving us. Help us to live each day of our life in worship toward you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.